couple of quick things. Uh, first is that uh, we are uh, taking communion this morning, and so the, uh, the little cups are in the back on the table. So if you haven't picked one of those up, you can feel free to do that now. And we'll do that later on towards the end of the service. And then lastly, uh, this is an announcement for uh, the ladies of our church, and that is that on April 3rd, which is a Sunday after the service, there will be a, a women's fellowship. And so uh, please mark that in your calendars, again, for April 3rd, immediately following the service. Well, it is, as always, good to be in the house of the Lord. And we come here each week, uh, not because we have everything together, uh, not because we are perfect, uh, not because we are always doing great and excellent, but in fact, we come every week because it's, it's actually not the case. Uh, we have our own uh, struggles. Uh, we don't have things perfectly down. Uh, we certainly are not uh, perfectly obedient unto the Lord, uh, but we come each week because every single time that we come together, it's just another reminder that God is gracious, uh, that his uh, forgiveness and his mercy is renewed to us uh, each and every single day. And so if you're here and you are, uh, maybe there's a heaviness in your heart because of things that have happened this week, maybe you're feeling at guilt or shame because of things that you have done, there is grace for you. God means to remind us of the gospel, of the grace, of his grace in Jesus Christ. God intends to encourage us, to remind us that there is forgiveness of our sins, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, and he has justified us through our faith in him. And so as we come together this morning, let us worship the Lord together in, in, in song and prayer and through his word. But let us begin this morning by singing of the great gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let's do just that. Let's stand and let's worship. Uh, for God's word says that he saved us, not because of works done by us in, his right, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, right? By the washing of, re, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's worship. Sing together, what love? What love could remember no wrongs we have? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without the more sure. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Amen. Yes, Lord, let's worship with patience. What patience would wait as we constantly long? But Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weak, it's the vilest, the poor. Sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise, praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. 
Our sins, they are many, it's mercy, it's more. Riches, the riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We should need the dead, we could never afford. Since they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Children in darkness, morning, our sins they are many, his mercy. Sing praise, praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And grace. grace and peace, oh, how can this be? Lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless the least. You have said that our judgment is death. All eternity without hope, without rest. Oh, what an amazing mystery, what an amazing mystery, that your grace has come to me. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Oh, how can this be? Matchless King of all, in the blood price for me. Slaughter Lamb, what atonement you bring. By this sinner's heart, be cleansed, can be free. Yes, Lord, praise God. And oh, what an amazing mystery, an amazing mystery, your grace has come to me. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Mystery. What an amazing mystery. 
in righteous seeds to hide all the stains below we have judges sons and daughters for the sin that is our own may we now forgive each other and lay down our stones forgive Forgive it, forgive it, the blood of Christ. 
hearts we are forgiven. 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 The blood of Christ we are forgiven. Sing one more time. Forgiven. Forgiven. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the grace that you that you pour on us, Lord, the, and the grace that you have given to us, Father, in Christ Jesus. Lord, we uh, are unworthy of your grace. However, you graciously give it to us, Lord, in love. Father, I, I, I pray, God, that... Uh, you may open our hearts, Lord, to receive your word today. We're grateful, Father, for, uh, for your love through Christ, as we mentioned, Lord, but also, Lord, for our time in fellowship. This is your church. We are your church, Lord. And I pray, God, that we, um, as a body, Lord, may be encouraged and edified today, this morning, by your word. So I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Amen. Let me read to us from Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, we thank you because your great grace continues to abound. God, what a blessing it is that our lawless deeds are forgiven by Christ absorbing the penalty for every one of those deeds. Every bill, every sin is a, is a bill that always comes due. And what a blessing it is to have each and every single one of those bills covered by the blood of Christ. What a blessing it is to know that this infinite filing cabinet that held each and every record of our sins has been erased by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that such righteousness, that such forgiveness comes to us not by works, but by faith. Just as Romans tells us, that to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God, we pray that you might keep us grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, keep us from becoming like the Galatians, Lord. In his letter, the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians that how astonished he is that these Christians would so quickly desert Christ who called them into the grace of God. And why would he be so astonished? Because there is no other means of salvation but in the name of Christ. Because there is no other way that we can receive the grace and the mercy of God but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we come before you this morning. We ask God that you might forgive us of our sins and trespasses. And God, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which that we we trust in our own works. Forgive us for the ways that we trust in our own selves rather than trusting in the gospel of Christ. Lord, like a, like a bent iron bar that refuses to stray, and so our hearts are oftentimes trying to bend us towards a self-righteousness that will only lead us to condemnation. We have a tendency to bend towards our good works, towards church attendance, towards giving, for being good people, being good parents, being efficient with our time, looking to these other ways for our own justification. Lord, forgive us. And we ask, God, that you might straighten the metal of our hearts and keep it straight and keep it moldable and malleable. Help us to continue to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there is no other way of salvation. There is no other gospel. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to even anathema or to curse those and even an angel from heaven to preach something else other than the gospel of the grace of God. Because the gospel is our only means of salvation. And the gospel demands that we do not trust in our own works, but only in the works of another. And that is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning for all those who, who may be struggling in their Christian walk. Whether they are having a hard time drawing encouragement from the Scriptures, whether they are struggling with a particular sin, whether they're suffering for some, for some other reason. Lord, even though our sins are covered, it does not prevent us from suffering and hardship. But we even look to the gospel of Christ and we see Jesus, that even Jesus himself suffered but he suffered to make us righteous. And we read in the Psalms of how God is with the righteous. 
And this is the great benefit that we have, the great encouragement, the great reward of our righteousness, that the God who went through such lengths, who worked so hard through his son to redeem a people, to make them righteous through his son, that he will not so quickly abandon his people whom he has made righteous. Those whom you have purchased, you keep, and you give them grace, and you give them favor, and you cover them with your shield. And we pray, God, that you would encourage your people with these truths, with these promises. We pray that you might help them to remain strong and endure, to trust and wait, to be patient in tribulation, to rejoice in hope, and to be constant in prayer. Grant them relief. Deliver them from their troubles. Lord, we pray also this morning for the Krognalis as they continue to serve in Africa. Lord, grow in them and continue to nurture in them the very heart of Christ. That heart that we read in the Gospels, how he pursued the suffering and the weak and the sick. Lord, as they work in the hospital, Lord, we know that that door of the emergency room is a revolving door. And few of us here know the demands and the physical and emotional toll that comes from caring for the sick endlessly. So God, we pray that you would provide your saints rest at night, energy during the day, Lord, keep them healthy. Lord, even though that door is always revolving, God, we pray that you would remind them and multiply their hope in the gospel that promises that one day that door will stop revolving because one day there will be no more sickness and suffering. Lord, would you encourage them with this hope and would you also give them the courage and the boldness to share this hope that comes through the gospel of Christ. And we pray for the salvation of many who are on staff, and we pray for the salvation of those that they care for. And Lord, we pray also uh, for churches in our area, those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust in the gospel for salvation. Lord, Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It tells us that in the gospel we see your very righteousness, that is your upholding your justice and punishing sin, and at the same time forgiving the sinner. And we rejoice in that great gospel. And Lord, we do not want to be ashamed in preaching that gospel. So we pray that you would help us, help your churches, Lord, with boldness, with courage, and winsomeness to preach the gospel to the lost. Father, we continue to pray for the country of Ukraine, Lord, and we ask, God, that you might end this war soon, that you would turn the enemy back to where they came from. God, we pray for the many refugees, Lord, who have been forced to abandon all that they have known and love and all their belongings 
Lord, provide for them. We pray for nations as they seek to help provide the resources and the means to help those who are now homeless. And we pray for aid for those who are still in Ukraine who want to escape but cannot escape. Lord, we pray that you would provide a way for them to escape. We pray for President Zelensky and we ask that you would give him knowledge and understanding. We pray for his leadership, for his wisdom. Guide him, Lord. And Lord, we pray for his salvation. We pray, Lord, that there would be a call to repentance like we read in the book of Jonah. That he might come to apprehend the gospel of Christ and lead many to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for the salvation of many. God, and we pray for their peace. And lastly, God, we pray this morning for all those, we pray for all those in our church, Lord, who are fathers with children in the home. Lord, there aren't too many good and godly examples of what it means to be a father in the world. Even in the scriptures, there aren't too many good examples, even many of the saints who are not very good fathers. But I think that this is intended to highlight the vivid example of a great father that we read in the scriptures, and that is God who is our Abba. As fathers, Lord, help us to learn from your enduring patience, to learn from your gracious forgiveness. Help us to imitate your firm commitment to those whom you love. Help us to emulate your speedy attention to deal with sin and those things that are not in harmony with your divine will and help us as fathers to deal swiftly with our own personal sins. Lord, help us to be more like you. Help us to work diligently. Help us to work against all laziness and anything that presents itself as an obstacle that might impede us from working hard and leading our families to know and worship Christ. Our fathers would be like Joshua in the scriptures, that we might be men of courage, faithful, protective, zealous for the glory of God, and that like him, we might also say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that you might help us to lead our families to do so. Lord, we trust you for all of these things, and we look forward to all that you are going to do. God, and we pray also, this morning, the prayer that you have taught us to pray in your scriptures, which say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. If you would, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're reading verses 16. Ecclesiastes 3, 16. We're reading down to verse, or chapter 4, verse 
Ecclesiastes 3.16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you might encourage us. Lord, even as we read this passage, if we're honest, it seems very uh, very hopeless. But Lord, help us to look past the hopelessness and help us to see the hope that is there, the hope that is in the Scriptures, the hope that is in the Gospel of Christ. Lord, would you teach us, would you encourage us, would you cause us to grow into greater maturity through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In some way, shape, or form, at some period, at some point in our lives, we have experienced what it's like to be mistreated, to be treated unfairly, perhaps not receiving what we have worked so hard to earn, perhaps been favored over somebody else for no apparent reason, falsely accused of something we didn't do. And then we also know, if you've experienced that before, you know what it's like, you know the feeling. Sometimes you feel hurt, sometimes you might feel sad, sometimes you might feel angry, sometimes you might even feel like you need to get back at someone. And in some way, we've also witnessed or have read about injustice, the injustice that happens in the world, the injustice that happens to others. And we feel similarly. We feel angry. We feel upset. We want the person who has treated the other person unjustly to pay for what they've done. On the flip side, perhaps you have been on the side that has treated somebody unfairly or unjustly. Maybe perhaps with your own eyes, perhaps in front of you, you have witnessed a form of injustice, somebody being treated unfairly, and there was an opportunity perhaps for you to respond, and for whatever reason, you, you didn't. Perhaps you were too afraid. Perhaps there was a risk of losing social capital, fearing repercussions perhaps. 
Aristotle calls justice anything that tends to produce or preserve happiness and its constituents for the community of a city. Justice, therefore, can be understood as a virtue of a community, the harmony of all the, all the souls that form it. Justice is something, right, that you cannot have a society without justice. Justice is something that we desperately need, and justice is one of those things that we could use a lot more of. As we turn to Ecclesiastes, we've been considering the contrast between the good life and the secular life, that is the life that is lived without relationship with God, without the fear of God, without knowledge of God. Now it turns to this topic of justice. How does the theme of justice help us to understand the contrast between these two different lives? How does justice help us to understand what the good life consists of? And what can the secular life say or respond to injustice, a reality that is in the world? And so these are some of the questions that this passage answers. So first, let's turn to the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Teacher of Ecclesiastes says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I don't think that Aristotle is too far off the mark. I think, yes, justice, when there is justice, it promotes unity, it promotes harmony, it promotes the well-being of people. A simple definition of justice is, could be simply said, what is right or as it should be. But when it comes to justice and helping us to understand what justice is, well, justice, to consider what justice is, you have to consider, well, who sets the standards of justice? By what standard? Whose standard? Because if left to man himself, right, justice can mean anything. One man's form of justice could be another man's forms of justice. It would be different from somebody else's. There has to be one, one specific standard of justice. And the scriptures make clear that the standard of justice ultimately comes from God. The laws of, that govern man ultimately come from God. The law that is written in our heart, the conscience that tells us what is right and what is wrong, ultimately, as Romans chapter 2 tells us, comes from God himself. We see, for example, in the Ten Commandments, do not covet, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. When Jesus was questioned, what is the great law or the greatest law in Matthew 22? He answers that question. A lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Actually, everything, every law that is written in the scriptures, every law in the Old Testament, every commandment written in the New Testament is summarized in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the Ten Commandments. That is, in part, the essence 
of the law that governs our society. Right, to do well to our neighbor, to love neighbor as ourselves, though it's not right written in that in that manner. And she doesn't have right the love the Lord your God in part. But on these two things, these two things ought to govern man's life. This is essentially what promotes well being, harmony, unity. And prosperity. This is the reason why, towards the end of the book, in the teacher, Ecclesiastes says, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. God sets the standard, God has written his law in this on, the, on, the, on man's hearts. And we know what injustice looks like, we know what the perversion of righteousness looks like. We've seen it, we've read about it. Perhaps we've even done it ourselves. We have a clear apprehension of what is right and what is wrong. The teacher continues. In the place of justice, where you expect justice, there is injustice, there is wickedness. But he says confidently that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He will judge them both. By what standard? By his standard. By God's standard. He will judge the righteous and the wicked. But what do we mean by righteous? We want to understand how God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Well, then we want to understand what does it mean to be righteous and what does it mean to be wicked. This is important because right, we have a tendency to define righteousness by good works. We have a tendency to define righteousness by how good we do and keeping the law and doing good to others. And that is a part of righteousness, but that isn't the essence of righteousness. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, is written for us, what is the law's intent? It says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Chapter 3, verse 20 of the book of Romans says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The intent behind the giving of the law, the intent behind our knowing the difference between right and wrong is so that we would know the difference between right and wrong, so that we would understand and know what is sin and what is not sin. But it was never intended as a means of one's personal righteousness. It was never intended to be man's salvation. In Romans chapter 5, it actually makes that very, very clear. It's speaking about Abraham and how it tells us in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed the Lord and accounted to him as righteousness. Not his observance to the law, because the law, according to Romans 5, wasn't given at the time of Abraham, was given long after Abraham had passed away. But no, righteousness came to him through faith, believing in the Lord. And some, some righteousness, or those who are righteous, are righteous because of faith. It is based on faith, which makes relationship with God possible because sin is lawlessness. Sin severs man's relationship with God. And faith is what grounds or makes 
relationship with God possible. The ground of man's righteousness is not in his good works, but the ground is relationship made possible only by faith in God. And further, New Testament makes clear that the object of faith must be in the person of Jesus Christ. That relationship with God through Christ that is grounded in faith is that a relationship that is characterized by obedience. Right? Those who are made righteous through Christ, through believing in Christ, their life, their relationship with God is characterized by love and obedience. It is why Jesus in the Gospels has a harsh word to say to those who claim to know God based on their own works. He says to them, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? On the other hand, we have the wicked. The wicked, in the context of this passage, are those who pervert justice and who also pervert righteousness. We have to think about what is the ground of such unrighteousness? What is the ground of wickedness? And the ground of wickedness is unbelief. It is having no fear of God. No belief in God. No relationship with God. There are many people in the world who claim to have a relationship with God when it's actually not true. There's a profound difference between having a relationship with God and saying you believe in God. Again, it's why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Because the relationship is to be characterized by love and obedience. Right? How can you say you love God while cheating on your spouse? How can you say you love God and yet at the same time being angry with your brother and sister in Christ? How can you say that you love God when you are actually trying to make plans on how to take revenge or get back at somebody for they're treating you unkindly or unfairly? How can you say you love God and at the same time treat others unfairly and terribly? Psalm 14 speaks to this root of wickedness. It says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It is unbelief. It is not believing in God that leads to corruption, that leads to abominable deeds, that leads to injustice. And the Bible makes clear throughout, the, from beginning to end, from cover to cover, that everyone in all humanity falls into one of two camps, either the righteous or the wicked. Either you are righteous because you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that relationship is characterized by love and obedience, or you fall into the camp of the wicked who does not actually believe in God, who does not obey God, who does not love God and his son Jesus Christ. Right, which one would you fall under if judged by God's standard? And it is this justice that the teacher is confident is coming. 
is confident that God will one day judge the righteous and the wicked. And from where does he get this source of confidence? I think from at least two places. One is the law of, is the law of Moses. It's the, at least the first five books of Moses. One passage, for example, is Exodus 34, 6, where it tells us that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That passage speaks to the fact that God will judge the wicked and that no one gets away with anything. I think the teacher also draws confidence from the very character of God. To understand the character of God, you must also give yourself to understanding what sin is. And if we understand sin, then we can understand rightly the justice of God. Sin is wickedness. Sin is injustice. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is iniquity. It is transgression. It is everything from lying to murder. And it is even a thanklessness towards God. Sin is anything and everything that is not in harmony with the divine order and will of God. God has a divine will. God has a vision. God has a standard. And anything that does not meet that standard, anything that does not fall in harmony with his divine order and will is considered sin and deserving of his justice. God's justice is in response to human sin. And because God defines what is just, and because he is just, for him to deny or fail to bring judgment and justice would be a denial of his own character. And in his own character, he cannot deny himself, for God cannot be anything but God. So God cannot help but bring about justice. And for God to fail to act according to his justice would essentially make him like man. In the criminal justice system, right, there's a bail, right, somebody commits a crime, somebody that set a bail, pay this amount, and you can be released, and you can have this money back when you come back, when you come to your day of court in court. It's intended to be an assurance that the person will actually come back for their court date, but not everybody actually does. But in God's criminal justice system, there is no such thing as a bail because there's no need for it. Because in God's justice, nobody gets away with anything. Because no matter how long man can try to run away from God's justice, God will, at the end of the day, get his justice. Hence the teacher, towards the end of the book in Ecclesiastes, says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It is the confidence of a coming judgment of the righteous and the wicked that we must maintain. It's not a matter of if, but when. 
And with regards to this coming judgment, we can expect certain things. Second, we can expect the rewarding of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. The passage says that God is testing man. The word testing there means it's... it's, it's it's, it's intending to tell us that he's clarifying. God is intending to clarify to men, make something clear, to expose them to a reality. And what is that reality? What is that point? But first, let's see how he makes his point. So the teacher is comparing man to beasts. And the gravity of his point actually sort of loses its punch for us today. It would, have, it would have meant something very differently for his original audience in making this comparison between man and beast. Because today, right, we, we have animals in our home. Right, the dogs are considered man's best friend. And not, it, that's not entirely a bad thing. But this is where the gravity of the point sort of loses its punch. Because we have this tendency in society to treat animals like human beings. I take, for instance, California, I believe it was last month, trying to introduce this, this legislature with regards to the, uh, the, the well-being and protecting pets, specifically dogs and animals. And this legislature had said that Every dog and cat, every pet is, should be guaranteed freedom from exploitation, cruelty, neglect, and abuse. That's good. I think we shouldn't abuse animals. But it adds, it should be guaranteed a life of comfort. It should be guaranteed free from fear and anxiety. It should be, it should be guaranteed daily mental stimulation and exercise. It should be guaranteed therapeutic health. What does that even mean? Essentially, they're trying to introduce sort of a bill of rights for animals. Back then, to the original audience, yes, they had animals, but they're not animals that you actually had in your home. Dogs were considered scavengers. They weren't considered pets. Whereas today, right, it's very differently. In fact, many people today treat their pets like their children. Right? Oh, come here, baby. Oh, I love you so much. Come into daddy's bosom. You can come and sleep and cuddle me in my bed. And because of this, it's near impossible to understand the punch to the gut that the teacher's remarks are intended to communicate. Because you see, he's actually trying to offend you. He's trying to offend you in comparing man to beasts. They all have the same end. Death comes for both of them. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any pets. I'm not talking about that at all. And I'm not saying that he's trying to elevate animals to the same value and dignity of man, nor is he trying to do the opposite. 
to degrade man as well. But his point is to offend so that we might accept the reality that comes to us like the, like the, like the, like the scratching of nails on a chalkboard. And his point is that man, as much as man pretends to be, that man is not God. Puritan Matthew Henry had once said, It is no easy matter to convince men that they are but men, much more to convince bad men that they are but beasts. So this is his point. As long as there is injustice in the world, as long as man continues to pervert justice, as long as man is unable to establish perfect justice in the world, it's intended to remind us that no man is God. As much as he claims to be, as much as he tries to be, man can never be God. Because at the end of the day, they suffer the same fate as the animals that they cuddle in their beds. In addition, the lack of permanent, satisfying, ultimate justice that leads to the prospering of all and the preserving of everyone's happiness, all of these things is intended to be this, this brazen sign that points to man's inability to bring such justice in the world. Therefore, reminding us that at the end of the day, we are all powerless. And that we depend on another to bring his ultimate and satisfying and permanent justice. The author in Ecclesiastes is repeatedly trying to teach us that the secular life, that is the life that is lived apart from God, will always fail to deliver. It cannot deliver in fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, happiness, meaning, and purpose. And in the end, the secular life concludes with a degree of uncertainty. But what happens at the end of death? Now the teacher At this point in salvation history, so some mysteries were still not revealed yet. There was no yet understanding, no comprehensive understanding of what life looks like after death. Though there are some, there is some hope written at least in salvation history at this point in time. We see this in the psalm in several places that there is this hope, that there is this, this sort of this assurance that man who is righteous can still be with God. But then when we have the New Testament revelation, is that these mysteries that were once hidden are now revealed specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And what we see also is that this confidence that the teacher has that one day God will certainly judge the righteous and the wicked, we see affirmed in the New Testament where it tells us by whom God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In John 5, 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He says earlier, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Man's life is lived with a high degree of uncertainty. Uncertain about the next moment, uncertain about the next hour, uncertain about the next week, uncertain about the next season. How long will this last? How long will my pain last? When will something good happen to me? When will my circumstances change? What will happen to me after I die? Now the righteous also live with those, with many of those uncertainties. But they are also confident about one thing in specific that gives them hope each and every day. And one of the other things that has been revealed to us when we consider the entirety of the scriptures, not only that God has made Jesus the judge of the righteous and the wicked, but that there is something to look forward to after this life for the righteous. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Continues in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We see here that there's the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. And the punishment of the wicked is that they will spend an eternity without God. That the wrath of God remains on the person. It will be meted out in God's divine justice. But the righteous, on the other hand, will see eternal life. They will see God. They will behold God. They will be with God forever and ever and ever. In John 17, 24, if you ever wonder how Jesus prays for his people, here's your answer. John 17, 24, this is Christ's prayer to the Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That's how Jesus prays for the righteous. Jesus prays that they, that you may be with him where he is to see his glory. Those whom Christ knows are those for whom he died. And those for whom he died, he prays for. That they might be united with him and behold his glory. The great promise of the gospel that gives us great confidence today is that if you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you will receive eternal life with God. How is this even possible? 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 3. 22 to 25. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is the one who suffered on the cross, the righteous 
for the unrighteous, that is you and I, and thereby taking not only our sins, our lawlessness, our thanklessness, every single sins that we have done in our lives and have done today and will do in the future, Christ has taken them upon himself and has taken also the just punishment that those sins deserved. If you've ever lied, stolen, cheated, been unfaithful, failed to act or defend the weak, have treated others unfairly or or unjustly or even hated God, Christ takes all of those things and so much more and the punishment that those sins merit. He takes them upon himself when you believe in him and trust in him. And then you are declared innocent and forgiven. Then as a result, you're called then to maintain a reconciled relationship with God by faith and repentance. The confidence of the righteous is that they have been forgiven of all their sins and that they receive eternal life through faith in the Son of God. In the death of Christ, we see that God resolved the biggest problem that you and I have, and that is the problem of our sins and the punishment that those sins deserved. And God has made a way through Christ for his being able to satisfy his righteous demands and at the same time being able to justify and declare righteous the unrighteous. The reward of the righteous is eternal life with Jesus Christ. Then lastly, our passage points us to the hope of the righteous and the despair of the wicked. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them, that is the oppressed. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Remember, the teacher's overarching point is to help us to see what is the value of the secular life. What value is there in living a life apart from God? What can it offer? What gain is there in living a godless life? It's something that the secular life, along with every ideology, along with every philosophy, along with every worldview, has to address the problem of human suffering and the problem of injustice. When it comes to addressing the problem of injustice and human suffering, the wise teacher, as you have Remember and hopefully have seen, as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's considered the ways of man, considered the secular life with his God-given intellect, might even say a God-like intellect and wisdom, not the same as God's. He's given himself to the hedonistic pleasure, to the pursuit of everything that his heart wanted, withheld nothing from what his heart desired, trying to see what is the value of this kind of life, this godless life pursuing it without hesitation and coming to the conclusion here that there is no answer to the problem of human suffering. That the only say, the only thing to say at the end of the day that is better for the dead because they no longer have to live in a world of injustice and better off to have not been born and never have witnessed injustice 
and the suffering that comes from injustice. We're all familiar with stories. What makes a really good story is the tension, right? There's a tension in the story, whether it's a severed relationship that, that's begging to be restored, whether the hero is unable to, to, to catch and conquer the villain, whether there's mortal danger, right? This tension in a story is what helps a story be gripping and exciting. It's something that you want to continue to, to read about. And every single tension begs for a resolution. And the fact that there is so much evil and wickedness and injustice and suffering in the world points to the very fact that the world itself is full of so much tension. It's like a wet rag, right? You, try, you keep spinning around and then you try to wring all the, 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 the water out of the, the, the towel, right? You, you put it in a state of tension. That is what the world is like, in a state of tension and it is begging for ease. And man is unable to ease that tension. We're powerless. The secular life is a hopeless life because I cannot answer the problem of human suffering. Now surely you can learn some things from personal suffering, become better for it perhaps, but I cannot answer the fundamental questions of suffering. What is the purpose of suffering? Why do human beings suffer? And as long as I cannot answer those fundamental questions, all suffering is hopeless. Now, what I don't mean is that there isn't any hope in suffering. People can certainly hope and should hope for something better. But what I mean when I say that it is hopeless suffering, and what I mean is that it has no significant or intrinsic value. As a teacher continues to do throughout the book, he's tried to create in us an appetite for transcendence. And suffering serves as a painful reminder to us that things in this world are not the way that they're supposed to be. That something isn't right. That things aren't good. That things aren't well. And we should never get used to suffering. Even though it is a part of humanity, it's part of our lives, suffering is not something to get used to. Whether it's personal or someone else's suffering. As long as a person continues in unbelief, they'll never have the hope of a better life where there is no such thing as suffering. In this case, suffering serves only as a painful reminder that life is hard. And a secular life cannot ease the tension of suffering. Can I answer the fundamental questions? Now, I'll admit that believing and trusting and following God and looking to his scriptures does not answer every question surrounding suffering. I cannot tell you why some people have a harder time in their lives than others. I don't know why some people go through this tragedy and some don't. I don't understand why some people go through a particular kind of suffering and others seem to be spared 
And I'm not even sure that having the answers to such questions would bring anyone any comfort. The teacher's intent is to help us to look past all the suffering to be able to see the God that is there. The God who understands and sees our suffering. The God who intends to show us and teach us that we may not understand all the questions surrounding suffering, but suffering does not have to be meaningless. And that suffering can lend itself to hope. You see, because the scriptures teach us that our suffering is of eternal value and significance. And one of the ways that we draw encouragement, the way we, we, we draw most encouragement from is by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. By looking to the suffering servant. At the cross, we see that the Lord did not turn a blind eye to suffering, did not ignore suffering, did not pretend like suffering in the world and injustice doesn't happen. Now, in our lives, suffering seems to happen to us, right? We don't go looking for suffering, but it seems to just barge into our lives without being invited. It seems like we have no control over it. We have no control at many a times when it goes away. When we look to the cross, we see something different. We see Jesus. While we may not have a choice about when and how we suffer, Jesus had a choice. Jesus could have chosen to remain where he was or to walk through the door of suffering, place himself under the hands of sinners, subject himself to be treated unjustly, unfairly, to have his words twisted to mean what they did not mean, to be accused of doing things that he never did, and even die like man does. Jesus had a choice, and Jesus chose to walk through the door of suffering so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. Jesus subjected himself to an unfair trial. Jesus subjected himself to being beaten, bruised, forced to carry the cross, and crucified to that cross so that you and I, through faith in him, might be spared of eternal suffering. He did this so that in God's justice, he could satisfy the demands of God's justice towards sin and freely forgive those who have made Christ their Lord and Savior. And through the suffering of Christ, and what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection, it guarantees for us that our suffering in this life and in this world is actually not meaningless. That it isn't in vain. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our grieving in this life, or the trials that we experience, the sufferings that we are called to endure have a meaning, have a purpose. And according to First Peter, it tells us that part of that purpose is to strengthen your faith. To cast yourself upon the Lord. To make you that much more ready for heaven. That while there is suffering in this world, when Christ returns... There will be glory and honor and praise that is coming your way. And that suffering today prepares you for that glory and that honor and that praise that is coming to you. By helping you to lean into the Lord that much more than you did prior to the suffering. Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. One of the purposes of suffering, according to this passage, I think, is to wean us from this world and to help us to see Jesus Christ as infinitely valuable. You should just assume that you are much more attached to this world than you think you are. You just are. And so am I. And one of the purposes in suffering is to get us to be less attached to this world and become more attached to heaven. To remind us that we are just pilgrims in this world and our heavenly home is where we're going. And to help us to see Christ as the greatest treasure that we possess. Not anything in this world, but Christ that's our greatest and most valuable treasure. And let us not forget the hope of Romans 8.28, where it tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So even trials, painful experiences, suffering, God mysteriously, in ways that we will never understand, perhaps, weaves it and orchestrates it for your good. God is using them for your good. The hope that we have, even as we are painfully reminded through human suffering that all is not right with the world, is that Christ, the judge between the righteous and the unrighteous, will one day right every wrong. And he will one day establish an everlasting justice that secures the well-being, the prosperity, the happiness of all those who belong to his heavenly kingdom. This is our hope. This is our reward. This is what we look forward to. And in the meantime, our call, our call is to trust in the justice of God. We might feel at times that we want to get back at someone for doing us something that we did not deserve, for treating us unfairly, for treating us unjustly. But the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. 
you feel that tension that you want to release, that you feel like you won't be able to release until you're able to repay the person for what they did to you. But Jesus says, no, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Let that ease the tension of your life. God will establish his justice. And until he does, we remain hopeful. We pray for his kingdom to come, for his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not only that, but the Bible also tells us to pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us. Pray for the evil and the wicked. Pray for the unjust, for their conversion. And because you and I know that one day that bill will come due and they will have to pay for the debt of their injustice. The Bible also tells us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness is freely given. So we pray, we remain hopeful, we trust in the justice of God, and we look forward to the day when we will be united with Christ and he will establish his kingdom of righteousness. In a moment, we will conclude with a song, but let us this morning respond by taking communion together. So if you haven't done so yet, if you happen to come in late, uh, there's a cup in the back on the table. Feel free to grab one of those while, while I sort of just lead us in a time of communion, which I should grab mine. The Bible commands us to take communion regularly. And communion, taking the bread and cup, is intended to be a symbolic representation of spiritual realities. We don't believe that they actually become the the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, but they represent something. They're intended to remind us of certain things. This reminds us Yes, of the incredible love of God in Jesus Christ, of his mercy, of his grace. But this also reminds us of the justice of God. This reminds us of the sinfulness of sin. Of what our sins deserved, which we so vividly see in the Gospels, where Christ took the punishment of our sins, crucified to that cross, where he met the demands of, of justice, of the justice of God. This reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection that proves that the righteous demands of God have been satisfied in the work of Christ. And through that, we receive forgiveness, mercy, reconciliation, adoption, eternal life with God. This is what... This is what communion reminds us of. This is what it represents. This also reminds us of the day when Christ will return and his righteousness will be established and all those who are righteous in Jesus Christ will be joined together with Christ and take this meal together with Christ. A day that we long for and a day that we pray God would hasten. So whether you are a member here at the church or not, if you are 
if you've made Christ your Lord and Savior, if your life is characterized by the faith and obedience and repentance that God requires, not perfect obedience, not perfect repentance, but if your life is characterized by those things, and you have also received the baptism, then this meal is for you as a brother and sister in Christ that belongs to the household of God. But even as you take this meal, right, confess your sins to the Lord. You may come this morning with a heaviness of heart because of things you have done, sins you have committed, perhaps to a friend, towards a family member, towards someone outside the home. Towards a, maybe it's a personal sin. This meal reminds us that there is forgiveness. This meal reminds you that Christ Jesus died for you. That in his life and in his name, you have forgiveness of sins. And you have reconciliation with God. So even as you take this meal, remember and trust in the forgiveness that you have through Jesus Christ. Now, if you have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior in the life, isn't characterized by the repentance and obedience and love unto God, then we ask that you not take this meal with us, and we don't do that in a critical manner. We don't do that in a judgmental way, but the Scriptures warn those who take this meal in unworthy manner, as those who do not, may not belong to the household of God through faith, that those who do so drink themselves upon themselves a particular kind of judgment. I would want to spare you of that judgment, but even as we take this meal, consider what you've heard this morning. Consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the justice of God. That until you believe in the Lord Jesus and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, the justice of God has not been met on your behalf. But it can be today if you would trust in Jesus. Confess you are a sinner unto the Lord and commit your life to following him. Then you too can become a member of the household of God. So what I'll do is I'll read a passage of Scripture, then we'll take the bread, followed by another passage of Scripture, then we'll take the cup and conclude with one last song. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's take this together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's take this. Jesus, we thank you for dying for us. And we thank you for resurrecting for us. Lord, in the gospel, we are not only reminded of your great justice, but we are reminded of the great grace that comes to us. Lord, as we look to the cross, let us remain hopeful of the coming righteousness 
Let us remain hopeful of the great promise that one day you will establish a kingdom of righteousness on this earth. Help us to be vigilant, to be wait, actively waiting by walking in love, by walking in repentance. And Lord, keep us from working out our salvation as a means of earning that salvation. But help us to continue to trust in Jesus and his finished work and the righteousness that comes to us in his name. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship one last time together. Amen. As we sing this song, let's just keep in mind today's sermon, the words that we heard, God's word. Let's sing to him. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse to sell. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cause, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know. It's rain. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so might see the strength to follow your command could never come from me. Oh, Father, use, oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be 
on church. of all lord i i just want to thank you lord thank you father for your grace lord for your grace in the midst of our suffering uh, and in this life here uh, god god i pray that we may examine our lives as we as we stand before you lord may we seek justice uh but may, may we seek lord your righteousness May we seek the confidence as well, Lord, and the assurance in your salvation. So, God, I, I pray, Lord, that you may give us hope. Give us hope, Lord, in you, Father, as we, as we face many trials and temptations. And may we treasure, Lord, your promises, your faithfulness, Lord, to provide us that hope in Christ. God, may you establish your justice. Your justice and righteousness, Lord. May we look forward, Lord, to, to being united with you once again. God, we, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And today's benediction. It's out of 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5. Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, church, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed.